if you'll be turning your Bibles into Genesis chapter 10 this morning, we will be looking at many nations, the beginnings of many nations. So as you turn your Bibles there, um, I think I just have two announcements. Don't forget that Operation Christmas Child boxes, if you haven't gotten one and you would like to, there are more in the back. And if you have gotten one, they're due on November 15th. Um, and then the other thing is that we will have youth tonight from 5 to 7 here. And so uh, that being said, I think that's all for now. So Genesis in chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 comes on the heels of a very interesting story where um, the three sons of Noah, after the flood, have gotten into a little bit of turmoil. And the turmoil is over uh, an instance where their dad has planted a vineyard, and after he plants the vineyard, he partakes of the vineyard, and then he, after partaking in the vineyard, uh, is drunk, and then he finds himself drunk and naked, laying inside of his tent, and one of his sons goes in there and looks upon his father's nakedness. Now, there's lots of controversy of what what they believe actually happened in that instance but what's interesting is that no matter what happened this causes division in the family Uh, God's curse is upon this people called Ham and really he mentions the son of Ham Canaan and then his blessing and his favor are upon these two other families Japheth and Shem and so as we begin our passage today, I want to remind you and show you the biblical pattern that we've seen. Sometimes it's really good to zoom in on a few verses and on a section, and sometimes it's good to step back and go, what's the overall picture showing? What's the macro level? Maybe we're not in a biplane anymore, but we're at 30,000 feet looking down and seeing the big picture. And the big picture that we've seen so far is that sin always causes division and it separates In Genesis 3, we saw that man is separated from God by what? Sin. We see in Genesis 4 that Cain and Abel, brother, are separated from brother by sin. Uh, We see in Genesis 9, family is separated from family. We see that in these three brothers. So at this point in Genesis 9, we've seen that there's a contrast between those who scoff or mock at nakedness and shame. Think about this. Genesis 3, they're in the garden. Noah's in a garden. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were in a garden. There was fruit. Uh, There was fruit taken. Uh, The fruit revealed sin and shame, and it brought a curse, and then there was separation. In the same way, that's what happened with Noah. Noah was in a garden. He planted his own garden. He partook from that garden. God never said not to, but he partook too much. Too much of anything is not a good thing, and it can lead to sin. And so in that partaking of too much, he found himself asleep and naked, and his son comes in, and instead of doing what he could to cover the nakedness or whatever took place, many even think that there might have been some sort of incestuous relationship because if you read the book of Leviticus it says that no man shall lay with his father's wife and if he sees his father's wife naked he will have exposed his father's nakedness by sleeping with his mother or his uh, 
a stepmom or whatever. And so uh, all that to say that he's looked upon his father's naked in, nakedness in some way, and rather than covering it, he leaves and apparently tells everybody because his brothers hear about it, and they go in, and they are very respectful, and they honor their father, even though he's not in an honorable position, and, and they back in with a blanket of some sort. They lay it on him. They don't look at him. They cover his shame. So this separation is the separation between people that would mock or remain open in their shame and eventually call it good, and those who would seek a covering for shame and sin. So we see that separation take place in Genesis 3 and then also in Genesis 9. But then today's passage, Genesis 10 and 11, we'll see that sin separates nations. And as I read that heading that I wrote, I get it, a few days ago I wasn't thinking about the fact that sin is what's separating and dividing our nation right now. No nation divided against itself can stand. And so if you want to know what the real problem is, stop throwing stones at the other political party, stop blaming people, and start recognizing that it's sin that always causes separation, division, warring, and strifing, strifing, strife. And so all that to say in Genesis 10 today, we start to see uh, this brokenness. And we're going to see it. And what's interesting is we always think, well, my sin doesn't affect other people, right? But the problem is we're going to look at Ham, Japheth, and Shem. What we're going to find is that there's going to be brokenness in their relationships. And that brokenness will have started with individuals who sinned, not nations. And so your sin does affect those that are affected directly by you. So in Genesis chapter 10, we see the three sons of Noah, and we're going to see their descendants. But before we start there, just kind of a neat thought. You and I, whether we realize it or not, in the flesh are all direct descendants of Noah. It's kind of cool. You know, we're, we all got a little boat builder in us. We all got a little survivor in us. Our, in our genes is sin, right? But also in our genes is the opportunity for faith, the opportunity to respond to the call of God and be obedient and trust Him in His ways. And so he starts with the eldest. Whoever wrote this starts by writing about the eldest, Japheth. And in verse 1, he says, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Notice the order there. It's kind of interesting. They, they list the oldest son, Japheth, last. And yet in the genealogy here, we'll get the oldest son first. And then we'll get the youngest last. Interestingly enough, who did God pick to bring the people of Israel and eventually David and then eventually Jesus through? The youngest. He seems to make a point of over and over in Scripture actually having the youngest be the one whom his blessing goes through. But what do we do? Usually the firstborn is the one that gets the benefits of being the inheritance. Uh, many of you might do the 50-50 or the 25-25 or whatever. But the point is the inheritance spiritually is actually going to go to the youngest, the weakest. Uh, the thing that the world would call uh, not number one, priority. And so we see here uh, they're listed and sons were born to them after the flood. Now does this imply that only sons are born to them. No, not at all. 
But for whatever reason, in Scripture, the inspiration is that we would see the name pass on, the heritage pass on. And so we spend a lot of time talking about men, but that doesn't mean that there were no women, obviously, otherwise multiplication ain't happening. And so here we see in verse 2 through 5, Japheth, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, uh, and he did not enlist in the Marines. Just so you know, this is not Gomer Pyle, although a very honorable name, although I don't know that he's honorably portrayed. Anyway, uh, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, by the way, I'm going to say all these wrong, Havan, because he's probably uh, Spanish, right? Havan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Now, what's interesting is I'm reading Ezekiel this week, and in the end times, when you read in Revelation, and then also in the latter part of Ezekiel, you'll see the names Tubal and Meshech. Now, many believe that these are nations that come from the Russian area, and Meshech is actually believed to be, even by non-believing scholars, to be uh, the descendants of Moscow, led to the present-day city of Moscow in Russia. And so, uh, Tiras. And then the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarma, and the sons of Haven were Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language and according to their families into their nations. And so don't picture this like a, a chain of events. Chapter 10 is a panoramic view of the descendants. You might draw up your family tree. So there's not a timeline built into here, but what's interesting is in each one of these groups, You'll see a time in these families where after the second generation, it says things like they were separated, or they were divided. And, and in, in the next one, you're going to see Peleg. And he, it says he's named Peleg because in his days, the earth was divided. And we'll get there in a minute. But my point is, is that as we list out these names, this is outside of time. They were just seeing a list of names and it kind of is built into the time period, but then in chapter 11, we're going to go in back into the chronology of the history. Does that make sense? So we're seeing the family timeline, and then we're going to see the historical events that took place during that timeline. And so here we have verse 2 through 5, and what is interesting is in verse 5, it actually says this is where the people of the Gentiles, the peoples of the Gentiles are separated, and they live on the coastlands. And so these are my people. They, they want a little ocean view. They want to be able to go travel to sea. And so in verse 6, we go on to the sons of Ham. Now, Ham here, if you translate the name literally, it actually means hot or warm. And many believe that this is due to the fact that these people would end up living in Africa, and many of them in the Sahara region. And so whether or not that's the case, a lot of people look at the curse on Ham and they go, well, see, that's why people enslaved them. Well, a lot of people read the Bible, saw the curse on the people of Ham, and they took their faith and they started enslaving the people of Africa years and years ago because of what the Bible says. But I think many times we read the Bible and try to fulfill things or get uh, permission to do the things that we want to do anyway. Uh, the reality is, you know, the question becomes, why are there different ethnicities and races and 
uh, cultures. Well, the reality is, if, if I lived in, in uh, you know, like Antarctica or somewhere, I'm going to be kind of pasty white, you know, and yet if I live in a very dark, hot climate where there's lots of heat and r no winter, then more likely I'm going to be very tan. A and I don't believe in evolution, but on a micro level, what's interesting is that our bodies, by God, have been designed to adapt to the places that we live. And so over time, the skin color can change. And over time, our, our dialect changes. And so there's all these different thoughts about macroevolution, which is something that's not a certain kind, changing into another kind of animal. And then there's the other thought of uh, within kinds, there's minute changes in things. And think about animals and dogs. We breed out of them the things we don't want there. We breed into them the things that we do. You know, if you want your your uh, your cattle dog to have a better nose, you breed it with a beagle and all those things. And so all that being said, that I, I believe that people have different looks to them uh, because of the places that they live in part and because of the genetics that they inherit from their families. And so within this genealogy, verse 6 through 20, interestingly enough, he lists out what seems to be, to me, more people's from Ham and from Canaan than he does from Japheth or uh, Shem. So in verse 6, he says, The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba or Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Septica. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began, he began to be a mighty one on the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of this kingdom was Babel. Now, this is the beginnings of Babylon. And we just read about that a few months ago in the book of Revelation. Babylon will be destroyed in the end times. But then he lists out the beginning of this kingdom starts with a guy by the name of Nimrod. And I think in eternity, we're going to have a lot to say about Nimrod. Like, you Nimrod, what were you doing? You know, and you'll notice that nobody names their kids Nimrod. Uh, now, I say that, but in every county, there's always one guy that somebody knows, and they're like, well, actually, my cousin's uncle's brother's named Nimrod, and I take offense to that. Okay, I get it. If you know a Nimrod, then I'm sorry. But I'm just saying, it's funny if you name your kid Nimrod a little bit. If you can't laugh at that, then someone else will. So um, it says here that he begot Nimrod, and Nimrod began the kingdom of Babel. Now, what we're going to find out about Babel is the original language is Babylu, which actually means gateway to heaven. And so uh, we'll get to that point here in a minute. But his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now, you Bible scholars will recognize the land or the plains of Shinar as Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 says that Daniel and all the Hebrews that were deported or taken out of their land because of Babylonian captivity went to a land in Babylon in the plains of Shinar. So this is the same kingdom. So from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Now, Where's Nineveh known in the Bible? Well, in the book of Jonah. Jonah is told by the Lord, I want you to take and go to Nineveh and preach to them that in 40 days I will destroy them. 
And of course, Jonah didn't want to go there. Well, because it was a very ungodly place, and these were people that were enemies of Israel, and perhaps people that had taken Jonah's family away, like animals, skinned them and made furniture out of them. And that's not an exaggeration. That's what they did. That's how evil and wicked this kingdom will be that was begun by Nimrod. And so uh, he built Nineveh. Rehoboth Jr., excuse me, sorry, Rehoboth Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the principal city or the capital. Mizraim, verse 13, begot Ludim, Anamim, and Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, good grief, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. Now, were the Philistines like chummy with Israel or were they their enemies? Remember, Samson was actually one of the judges that God raised up to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so, uh, verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And if you remember, uh, Tyre and Sidon were preached against um, by Jesus. Uh, So, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Termite. We always make that joke, you know. But you have to do something with the names because otherwise people fall asleep. But those are all the nations that Joshua will, will ultimately go in after they cross the Jordan. After Moses brought them across the Red Sea, Joshua brings them across the Jordan. They go into the land of Canaan, right? And they take out all these nations. And so... The Arvadite, the Zemurite, the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. Again, that dispersion of these peoples that were like one another. And verse 19, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza. That name sounds familiar. The Gaza Strip, it's a territory in modern day, what many call Palestine or Israel. And so There we have the Gaza Strip laid out. And then as you go towards Sodom, first mention of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lacia. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. And children were born also to Shem. So let's stop there because that's a lot to take in. For some reason, God's pointing out way more families of the ungodly and pointing out specific names that ultimately, in the long run, Israel's going to have to battle with. And there'll be a stumbling block to Israel. And these, these will be a scourge to mankind, and they'll actually be a big hindrance to what God's going to do through His rescue plan. So Nimrod is this mighty hunter before the Lord. You say, why are we going back to this guy? Well, He's the mighty hunter before the Lord, better as the rebel before the Lord. The, the translation is incorrect. He wasn't a hunter like we would think, like going out in the deer woods. He was a mighty, mighty hunter of men's souls. And if you think about it, he's in the likeness of his captain, which is Satan, who comes, comes to rob, kill, and destroy. So with that being the case, we have Nimrod, who is a hunter or a conqueror of souls of men. And he starts this kingdom that will ultimately try to thwart what God's doing in the world. So he begins this kingdom called Babylon, or Babel, called Heaven's Gate. 
And what's interesting is that at the end of the thing, God's going to confuse the language, and instead of calling it Heaven's Gate, He's going to call it confusion. He's going to disperse the nations of the world, but we'll get there. So He began Babel, or Babylon, and Nineveh. Now what's interesting about Nimrod that we don't have in Scripture is that in every culture, this was in the plains of Shinar in a place called Mesopotamia. To you kids that have been in public schools, you know that Mesopotamia is something that's studied in early, early world history. But what you need to know is that before the dispersion at the Tower of Babel, we have this tower that's built, but before that you have this false religion that started by Nimrod. So I'm going to read what someone else wrote, and hopefully it will be a little bit more concise. But in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14, we have this calling out of uh, women in the days of Ezekiel weeping for a son by the name of Tammuz. Well, where does that name come from? Well, what's interesting is that there was a religion started during the time of Nimrod with Samaramis, who is his wife. Now, Nimrod was a mighty man. And if you think about it, in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, there was these men of renown. The same phrases there, this mighty man before God, this re rejecting. So Nimrod actually means to reject God, to rebel against him. And so the thought is, let's rebel is his name. And so as he's rebelling, he starts this false religion, and really his wife does, who ultimately becomes called the queen of heaven. Now, his wife, her name is Semiramis, and Nimrod was a mighty battler. And so he went out to battle one time. And while he was out there, he was killed. And when he was killed, Semiramis, trying to keep the throne, be able to continue to be the leader, which the women were not in those days, she told everybody that her husband was a descendant of the god of the sun. And so... The God of the sun used his rays in her story to miraculously impregnate Semiramis. Now, so claiming a virgin birth. And from this virgin birth, basically, uh, comes Tammuz. What's interesting about that is that the, the thing that they said was that Nimrod, or excuse me, Tammuz was out hunting and was killed. And on the third day, guess what he did? He rose from the dead, made him a deity. So you have this, the father in the son. He used his rays to impregnate the woman, Mary, uh, uh, sorry, Samaramis. So there's this, this conjunction here. What's interesting is that from this pregnancy comes Tammuz, who is a type of the son, but it's a false religion. It's not anything to do with God. It starts with a man rebelling against God. And so it adds confusion to spiritual things. And ultimately, why would Satan do this? Why? I believe this is a satanically inspired false religion because Satan knows just enough about what God's planning to do. He knows Genesis 3.15. He knows the promise of a son, the seed of the woman. He knows that if the seed of the woman comes, he's going to be shut down. And so he makes a counterfeit. He takes the real thing that's going to happen. He says, how about I create a counterfeit? And when I create a counterfeit, it will disseminate through all the cultures so that when the real thing comes, everybody will be like, yeah, we've heard this story before. 
That's what Satan does. He creates counterfeits in order to cast a doubt on the real thing. And so, and think about it. When there's counterfeits circulating through, even if you have a real $100 bill and you go to the store, what do they do? The first thing they do is they check it. They, they got a marker. I thought it was bad to deface money, but apparently that's part of the process. They make it so intricate, and then they take a marker, which I guess tells you how it reacts because of the chemicals and the paper or whatever. And, and I'm sure Austin could tell you way more about it because he's kind of a coin guy. But all that to say, um, that's what happens. Satan causes a counterfeit. He, he drums up this false religion and causes mankind from now on to doubt whether or not this is even possible. And so all that to say, this is a type of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. A false gospel, a counterfeit gospel, and really it's just a perversion of the real deal. Um, so what's interesting is out of that, in every culture, there's a version of Samaramis, Tammuz, uh, and Nimrod. And so uh, she's got some AKAs, Qu AKA Queen of Heaven, AKA Diana, and we know that from the temple that gets built in Ephesus, uh, AKA Astarte, Asherah, which we'll find in the Old Testament when they put up these Asherah poles, Isis, I found that one kind of interesting, don't know if it ties in, Venus, Aphrodite, uh, Athena, Minerva, there was a song by uh, a band I listened to in the 90s called Minerva, and there's more and more. So what's interesting about this false religion is that uh, they would actually celebrate the birth of Tammuz at the winter solstice around, guess what, December 25th. And do you know how they would celebrate the birth of this child? They would go in the woods, cut down an evergreen, and they would put silver and gold on it. Huh. Another interesting fact. They would celebrate the death and the resurrection of this child. Or his dad. I can't remember which one. Sorry. But they would celebrate the death and the resurrection around, I don't know, April, March. And guess how they would celebrate the birth and the death and the resurrection of this child? They would celebrate it by painting eggs, because eggs are a symbol of fertility. And they would celebrate it with bunnies, because bunnies reproduce like bunnies. And so all that to say, why is that tied into our dates? Well, because there was an, an emperor, Constantine, fast forward into history, who was from a pagan society, and they were celebrating these things still in their culture, he became a Christian, decided to make it a state religion, which, by the way, doesn't work. You can't just force people to all be Christians. But in that, he tried to redeem the pagan celebrations and make them about Jesus. And so that's why we celebrate those dates to this day on those days. So if you think that Nimrod had no effect on culture, I would say otherwise. It's permeated every society around the world. And so does that mean we shouldn't celebrate Christmas on that day? No, I think we should proclaim Christ every day, especially on that day, because everyone's open to it. Does that mean we shouldn't celebrate Easter on that day? And I would say no. And I have some more thoughts on that, but we'll move forward. So all the way to the Jewish society, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, 
there we have an example in Scripture where God, through the, the pen of Ezekiel and through the words of Ezekiel, is telling them, I cannot believe that this false gospel has so spread, this false news about this false child so much that there are actually women weeping in the temple of God, Yahweh, over a man by the name of Tammuz. And the way that they would worship Tammuz was, guess what? He, this is a god of fertility uh, by drunken sexual orgies. And so all that to say, uh, it's affected every area of culture. And so here we have this Nimrod who has left a stumbling block for all cultures, and it causes problems. And so all that to say, let's go on to Shem. Good grief. Verse 21 of Genesis 10. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Now, stop there for a second. Eber, many believe, is the beginnings of the name of the Hebrews. And so um, here we have the, the line of Shem leading up to the Hebrews, which will start with Abraham in the middle of the next chapter. The brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Ful, Gether, and Mash. Not the TV show. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. So he tells us Eber's going to be a descendant, and then he tells us how we get to Eber. Now to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazmarveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. Now, many believe that this is where we see Job from the Old Testament in the line of Shem. He's a God-fearer. So it's kind of interesting. Now, whether or not he is, I don't know. But many believe that Job was actually a contemporary of Abraham. He was alive when Abraham was. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha, as you go towards Safar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And so, a lot to take in. But what I want to point out is that why is there different languages talked about in different places? Because interestingly enough, they all got the same grandpa. So how in the world are they all speaking different languages? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because here we have this map right here. Somehow they all started in the center and they go out from there. And we'll read about that here in chapter 11. But before we do, let's talk about where many of them landed up. So I have some little diagrams here. We have Noah with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We have Shem, which includes all those names, which many believe the descendants of Shem were the eastern countries like Assyria, Chaldeans, which is interesting because where was Abraham called out of? Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Iran, Lydia, Persia, and Syria. And then Ham and his descendants were Cush, 
Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The southern countries, more like northern Africa. So Arabia, Canaan, Egypt, uh, Ethiopia, which are descendants of Cush, Libya, and Sudan. So uh, then Japheth, where we have Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, which are the countries of Armenia, Europe, Russia, Turkey, and Wales. So not to bore you too much more, but I have one more. So what's interesting about this division is that we see the countries that many Bible scholars and uh, secular scholars agree on these, that Gomer uh, is people of France, Spain, Germany, and Wales. Magog would be Romania and Ukraine, the Eastern Bloc. Madai would be Medes and Iran. Havan would be the Greek. Tubal would be Georgia, not the state, but the country. Meshech would be Moscow, and Tiras would be Macedonia and Yugoslavia. Cush there under the line of Ham would be Ethiopia. Mizraim would be Egypt. Put would be Libya. Canaan would be modern-day Palestine or Israel. Heth, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites. Bible question, who originally inhabited Jerusalem? It was the Jebusites. They were the ones that the Israelites took it from when King David came and took it over. And then Shem, Elam, or Iran, Ashur, Assyria, Arpaxad, Chaldea, Eber, Hebrew, Joktan, Arabia, Lud, Lydia, Aram, and Syria. What's interesting is if you look at these different lists, you'll see that Iran is from the line of Japheth, but they also list it in Shem, but Iran is actually more Persian than Arab. So what's interesting is the question becomes as Westerners, why would Iran and Iraq be at each other? Aren't they the same? No. From the very beginnings, they were actually separate. So that's why there's the rub between them. Iran and Iraq do not like each other at all. And so, and maybe in different times they have. So um, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And so they, chapter 11, verse 1 goes on to say, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Now does that seem redundant to anybody else? One language, one speech. But I would submit to you it's because they had one written language and they have one spoken language they're, they're all in one accord in every possible way um, and notice this it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar imagine that it came up again and they dwelt there and then they said to one another come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar or pitch which, by the way, is waterproof. Just an interesting thought. Verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for who? Ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So they have one language. They're in the plains of Shinar, which you could see for a very long way. Perfect spot for a worship facility. They have baked brick construction with pitch on the outside. 
and their main goal is to make a name for themselves. Uh, this way we won't be scattered is what they say. They're, they're very reasonable. They're all working together. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when my kids all get along, it's a blessing, right? So why, if they're all talking to one another and they're all close to, they're even working together, why would God have a problem with that? And I would submit to you the main problem is that they want to make a name for themselves. They want to glorify man on the earth. They're making a tower unto the heavens, which is really, it's called a ziggurat, which a ziggurat is a, a worship facility, uh, and it's a place where they would do astrology. It's a place where they it would be an observatory in our day. They would study the stars. They would try to come up with weekly things to put in the newspaper, maybe. Um, they, they would try to... And I believe, by the way, that the gospel is actually written in the stars, but it's not because the stars are communicating themselves. It's not because we can find our way by searching the stars. Uh, we can't find the truth in the stars, but we can meet the truth in the midst of the story that God placed in the stars. And there's books written about that by believers. But it says here that the Lord came down and says this. The Lord came down to see, verse 5, but... So that's a contrast. God's not happy with this. The Lord came down to see the city that they built and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said this, Indeed, the people are one. Indeed, they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. They want to make themselves known. What they did with their unity was they built essentially a worship facility to make themselves great. And now, he says, nothing that they propose to, to do will be withheld from them. Now, you would think, isn't that what we're all looking for? Can't we just have world peace, enough money for everybody, and then everything will work out great? Well, the problem is, why would he stop this? Well, because man's intentions, even the ones that seem good, are driven by his heart. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse verse 5, the reason God flooded the earth in the first place was because man's thoughts and intentions and actions were only wicked all the time. And Jeremiah would go on to say that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Only God can know it. And in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 21, it actually says, even though man's intentions are still all the time wicked, yet because Noah had made a sacrifice, he made a covenant with them never to flood the earth again. And yet man in his pride decides we will unify, we will create a tower, we will go and worship. And yet what we find out is that God wasn't pleased with it because they were unified, but they were unified without him. They were working together, but they were doing it for their own cause, not for his. And yet if unified humanity is not the way to be saved, then my question for you is, what is? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. A rich young man comes to Jesus and says, um, it says, behold, in verse 16, one came and said to Jesus, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may be, have eternal life? How, how may I be saved? In verse 17, so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? 
no one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, then keep the commandments. So the young man says, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? I mean, come on. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be mature, if you want to be fully grown, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. In other words, take what you've been given and give it away to those that don't have anything. And if you do that, you'll store up treasure in heaven. You'll make a name for God. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? If that's the case, like if the rich can't be saved, then how can we be saved? Uh, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. With men, salvation is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. So the thing that these men and women are doing in the plains of Shinar, they're building something. They're working together. Perhaps they're even helping others have work and be able to labor and make money. Who knows? But what Jesus says here was true then as well. With man, salvation is impossible. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot save enough. We cannot do enough good things. It's impossible, Jesus says. But with God, all things are possible. And so the same lesson that he was teaching the rich young ruler, he's trying to teach these people. You, you, you guys are residing and you're building in Babalu, gateway to heaven. But I'm going to confuse your language so you can no longer work together. And the question becomes, why? Well, the answer is because... Uh, this is what they begin to do. Verse um, 6 ends by saying, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them because they're working together, because they all speak the same language. So come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Why would he scatter such a powerful group of people? Why would he divide them? I, I would say, in the same token, he not only did that, but it says there in the days of Peleg and Shem's line that the earth was divided. And many believe that this is talking about what we're reading in Genesis 11, where it says that the people were divided. But on the, a few slides ago, I had the word that I didn't read. In the original 
Hebrew, the word for the earth being divided was Eretz, which means the earth or the land. So he's not talking about the people being divided. He essentially created timeout spots for all these nations. He said, I'm going to divide you. And because you'll try to get back together again, I'm going to put oceans in between you. What's interesting is that he divided them by scattering them. So God will do whatever it takes to get our attention, won't he? God took these people that were all working together, and because they could all hear each other's voices, they weren't listening for him. And they weren't open to advice from him. Now, I'm sure they had an advisor for every little thing. But what's funny is that in order to get their attention, he's going to do some things that we think that God doesn't do. Uh, he'll bring division in their families. Do you believe that God will divide your family so he can get your attention? I do. You read it in scripture all over the place. Think about Jacob and Esau. Uh, and what's interesting is Jesus even spoke about this in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, it says this. Verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth, Jesus says, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am, it is accomplished. He's getting ready to be uh, killed on the cross. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Now we know that scripture says he came to bring peace on the earth, right? But, but until he brings peace on the earth, he says this, I tell you not at all, but rather I came to bring division. For from now on, five and one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three, Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. That probably happens a lot. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Why would God bring division? So he can get our attention. So we'll listen to him. Uh, he'll also tear down false worship in your life. You know that? In order to get your attention, he'll tear down your idols. All throughout the Old Testament, he warned them. I'm going to tear down your idols. You need to tear down your idols. So in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 12, Jesus does what? He goes into the temple. He doesn't go to the pagan. He goes to the people that are religious and should know him. He goes to the Hebrews. And what does he do? He's famous for it. He makes a whip of cords. He knocks over tables. He knocks over their, their unjustly weighted scales. And, and, and people did not like it, by the way. Matthew chapter 21, in verse 12, he says this, or it says this, Then Jesus went into the temple of God, drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And then the blind... And the, and so, so he clears out all the false worship. He clears out all the stealing that was going on. They were weighting their scales. They were robbing people blind. And then it says, once he restored true worship, removed all the false worship, the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were mad and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Tell them to stop. And Jesus said to them, 
Yes, have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. So in order to get our attention, God will do as much as sending his son in to knock over our false worship, to restore true worship. And then notice what happens is after the false worship's knocked down, there's purity and Jesus comes in and he does what he's promised to do. He sets at liberty those who are captive. He, he binds up the broken. He heals. He brings comfort. And then notice what the religious people always do that are unwilling to receive that tearing down of their idols. They get mad. They get mad that Jesus is the focal point instead of them. So he'll bring division in your family. He'll tear down false worship. He'll remove communication between people. He will actually make it so you can't talk to your people anymore. Why? Because he's trying to get your attention. And if he's doing that to you, if he's breaking down communication in your lives, you can be broken over it, but also recognize God's trying to get your attention. And I say this because in Luke chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, Zechariah, the, the dad eventually of John the Baptist, is given a vision in the prayer time, in the temple. He's offering up incense. The Lord tells him, I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to call his name John. And he goes, well, how can this be so? Uh, and then the angel says, I, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of Michael. Uh, God gave me this to tell you, but because you don't believe it, I'm going to make it so you can't talk. Why does God sometimes take away our voice? Uh, so that in the absence of our voice, in the absence of our ability to send things out, we might be more likely to take things in, to listen to what's going on around us. And so he'll remove communication between people. He'll even isolate you with your doubts. How many of you like to be lonely? Yeah, 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 all of us, right? We hate it. We don't. Nobody likes to be lonely. But if need be, God will isolate you in your doubts. John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the best of the Old Testament prophets. He was in the Old Covenant. And yet when he was in prison and he heard what was going on with Jesus, he sent two of his disciples. He doubted. He sent two of his disciples to Jesus. And he said, are you the coming one or, are you, or is there another coming? Are you the one or did I miss it? And Jesus said to him famously, Tell John the Baptist that the lame walk, the blind see, the captive are set free. Those who are oppressed by demons are set free from that oppression. Truly the kingdom of God has come, John. So he got, his, he got John the Baptist's attention. And you might read John the Baptist and go, why would he need to get his attention? Because John the Baptist was human and he had doubts too. That encourages me. Because when I'm alone and I'm doubting God's faithfulness and his love, He's got me alone, so I'll cry out to him and go, are you sure, Jesus? Are you sure? And then in those moments, because I'm imprisoned in my own isolation, he's able to speak to me and no one else can get in the way. So why did God confuse the language? Because he didn't want them to be spiritually confused anymore by Nimrod or any other false religion, by studying the stars, by burning incense or having sexual relations with prostitutes which was the way they worshiped. He wanted to spread them out so that they would, instead of relying upon the community wisdom, they would seek out God's wisdom in their loneliness. God brings division in every way so we can be united the only correct way. 
And I want to turn with you to Ephesians chapter 2 as we close. Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. So then turn back. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you, speaking to Christians, are no longer strangers and foreigners. But you are now, after having been divided, think about the day of Pentecost. All nations heard in their language. Think about after the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Again, what did God do to the people of God? He used persecution to scatter the faithful. God scatters so that we'll hear from him. Then God scatters so that they will tell about him. Does that make sense? God scatters so that we'll hear from him. He'll have our attention. And then God scatters so that we'll proclaim what we've heard. You can't be scattered with the message unless you first receive the message. You can't be scattered to hear the message. If you've already heard it, you need to be scattered to go and share it. And so all that to say, God brings division, but now in Christ, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the rest of the saints and the members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, whether we're together or apart, the whole building is built up to be a temple in the Lord. It's built up together, fitted together, just like stones. They were building with bricks to build a worship system that was false. He's building with you and I, and we are the stones. We're living stones, filled with the Holy Spirit, being fitted together. Verse 22, in whom, Jesus, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So all that said, God scattered you for a time and he's brought you back together. And then after we meet today, he's going to do what? He's going to scatter you and he's going to send you to places that you and I won't all go. But he's doing that because now we have a message to scatter. It's called the seed. It's called the word of God. It's called the gospel, our living hope. And there are people that have not heard it because guess what? They're still victims of this scattering. They're still confused. They've still been spent to sent to places they don't know around people that don't agree with them or do agree with them, and they're stuck in that. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for building us up as the household of God. We thank you for the times that you scatter us so that we can be confused and reach out to the one who is not confused. And we thank you for the times where you gather us so we can worship you and have things set aright again and we can have clear understanding in your presence, but we also, we recognize that you're going to scatter us this week. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that in the scattering, that we would walk no longer as a confused foreign people, not knowing where we are, or what our purpose is, but now recognizing that filled with the Holy Spirit, understanding and under the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have a mission. We've been scattered with hope. We've been scattered with no longer confusion, but understanding and wisdom. So, Lord, help us to share the good news. Help us to share the gospel that people can stop laboring and building and trying to make peace on earth, but instead to embrace the fact that your sword, the sword of your word, will divide us and remove the filth 
and bring division where it needs to be and do the surgery in our hearts that we so desperately need so that true worship can be restored and the temple can be a house of prayer, not a house of ill repute or a house of robbery or a den of thieves, but now a house that's prepared for worship where healing can be had. So Lord, uh, we ask you to do that in us this week. And we ask you to do all of that as our church uh, desires to grow, not necessarily in numbers, although we do want many to be added to the kingdom, but we want to see you grow in your influence in this valley, in this county, on every dirt road and gravel road and city street and in every business place, in every church, Lord, we want to see your kingdom come, your will be done, and that we would be unified under the banner of Christ that will never be torn down, that will never be scattered. And one day we'll all sing amen in heaven for all that you've done. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you for this message this morning. Thank you for the reminders. We need them, and we need you. So, Father, as we worship in this last song, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to grow in our relationship with you. Help us to become perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Help us to be mature and not cast about by every wind of doctrine, every false idol, every worship system. Lord, help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Amen.